Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Tim Madigan. Tim has been a journalist for more than three decades. He's written for the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Politico, and for 30 years for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Tim's books include the critically acclaimed and best-selling The Burning, The Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, which will be soon adapted for young adults, and other books including his memoir, I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for passing judgment with us. It's so good to be with you today. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation, maybe a little bit different than a lot of the talks I've been having lately. I hope so. That's a little bit of what we strive for here. And I do want to focus on your 2001 book about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, because we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary. And as you noted, I think it's still a largely unexamined piece of our history. I would say even after the 2019 HBO series, The Watchmen, and even after former President Trump held a rally there in the summer of 2020. So I'm going to assume that our listeners know not that much about this incredibly important event in our history. And so I may ask you some pretty obvious questions to start with. And I want to start by talking about the town of Greenwood before the massacre, before the massacre of 1921. Could you set the scene for us by talking to us a little bit about Greenwood and why it was unique in America at the time? Well, the uh, the name for it, um, and I think it was Booker T. Washington who first called it the Negro Wall Street of America. Now it's called the Black Wall Street of America. It was thought to be at that time to be one of the most prosperous African-American communities in the nation. It symbolized for a lot of black people what was possible for African-Americans in the nation at that time, or at least many thought that. Um, they thought they had come to a place that they were relatively immune from the terrible things that were happening to African-Americans in so many other parts of the country. And the reason there was this kind of symbiosis that had grown up uh, in Tulsa between whites and blacks. Uh, oil was discovered near Tulsa in 1905, I believe it was. And almost overnight, this sleepy kind of cattle town grew into this oil hub and the skyscrapers and big homes were built uh, virtually overnight. And then around that same time, black people started coming to Tulsa or coming to Greenwood from across the country. And one of the reasons was because they knew that when there were prosperous whites, that there were jobs, well-paying jobs for black people. And so the maid chauffeurs, gardeners, uh, shoeshine boys would make their way across the tracks into White Tulsa every day, uh, work, bring their money back across the tracks. And then there's this very prosperous and very sophisticated class of merchants and professionals that grew up there to basically give them a place to spend their money. So it was a it was an amazing place with movie theaters, lawyers' offices, newspapers, uh, many grocery stores, uh, libraries. And so it was this kind of citadel for African-Americans at the time. And ultimately, I think that was one of the things that contributed to what what ended up happening. So I want to get to, obviously, what ended up happening. But 
Can you talk to us a little bit more about the events leading up to the massacre? You did a great job of telling us about the town of Greenwood and why it is unique. And it does sound to me like it was a special place in America at that time. And maybe let's start with the summer of 1919, known as the quote-unquote Red Summer. What, what was that and what was happening? Well, uh, in cities and towns across the country during that period of time, a version of what eventually ended up happening in Tulsa happened in, I think, Chicago, uh, Houston. It actually happened in that summer, but I know that happened in East St. Louis, Chicago, Houston. There was racial violence in Duluth, Minnesota. And it's interesting that in virtually every case, they were categorized as a race riot, which in all these cases has always been a just a terrible misnomer. What this was was an attempt by the white society to try to justify violence against black people. Uh, and one of the great fears going back to the times of slavery among whites was the so-called slave uprisings. And so they tried to justify it using that language but in reality, it was some sort of incident that provoked the rage against an outmanned and outgunned uh, African-American community. And one of the most important things about Tulsa that I came to learn as a white person who grew up in northern Minnesota and had no experience in this or really no knowledge of it until I learned about Tulsa in the year 2000, was what happened in Tulsa was completely consistent with that time in our country, uh, unique perhaps only in its scope in terms of the magnitude of the atrocities. But that is what I was really stunned to learn. This wasn't just some horrible one-off. This was what it was like in the country at the time. These were the passions that were raging uh, around the issue of race in our nation in 1921 and in the years before. I think you do such a good job of this in the book, which is explaining to people why this is not an aberration, that this was consistent with what was happening in America. And I want to ask you a little bit about whether or not in some ways it's consistent with what's happening in America now. But before we leave the lead up to the massacre, is there anything else that you would want listeners to know about America at that time, contributing factors, other contextual elements where you think it's really important to understand X before we talk about the actual event? Well, one of the things that I think is really important is World War I, in that tens of thousands of African-American soldiers fought for the United States in World War I, fought, bled, and died. Uh, were subjected to German propaganda, saying, why are you fighting for a country over here when you're being treated the way you're being treated at home? And there was this sense, I think, an overarching sense in the African-American community that by their service in World War, War I, they had somehow proven themselves to white people back in the United States and believed by virtue of that service that they would finally be treated with more dignity and equity and much less violence at home. And the reality is, is that what happened when they got back to the States, they realized, if anything, things had gotten worse. And there are many stories of African-Americans being lynched in their army uniforms. 
But one of the things that did was, is that it added an element of resolve to black people, especially black veterans, in that they're going to be much less quiescent when it came to accepting these indignities and having violence perpetrated against them. And that played directly into uh, what happened in Tulsa on uh, the night of May 31st, 1921. That's really helpful and enraging background. I mean, the book is such a fantastic read and such a enraging read at the same time. And I think it probably is time for us to talk about that event. So could you tell us what happened for those people who don't know? What is this massacre that we're talking about? You just referenced the date. Uh, what happened at that date and for a few days after? Well, I believe it was on me, you know, and there was this, as they say in the book, that Tulsa, as was true of so many places around the country, was this just pile of dry kindling waiting for a match in terms of race. And part of the reason for that was the prosperity of African-Americans and the jealousy of that by so many whites in Tulsa. Successful African-Americans at that time almost invariably were regarded by white people as uppity. Anyway, so on May 30th, I believe it was, this young shoeshine boy, kind of a ne'er-do-well, an African-American kid who shined shoes in downtown White Tulsa, was riding in an elevator up to the, an upper floor to use the restroom, was being operated by this young woman, a white girl, and something happened in that elevator. There was speculation that the elevator lurched and he touched her in some way, but whatever it was... It was agreed by most people that whatever it was was fairly innocuous. But when the elevator stopped, this young girl ran out of the, ran out and started screaming assault, which is a, a very, very dangerous thing for a young African-American to have that kind of accusation lodged against him. So he's eventually arrested, brought into the jail and, and uh, in the courthouse in downtown Tulsa. The detectives, as I said, pretty much immediately established that there wasn't much to the accusations. And I think that Dick Rowland was his name was being held as much for his own protection as anything else. And and the matter might have dissipated were it not for an editorial, a front page editorial that ran in the Tulsa white owned newspapers, which was trying to use inflaming racial hatred as a means to sell newspapers. But the headline, which has disappeared and was just remembered anecdotally, the headline was, To Lynch Negro Tonight. And within hours of that uh, hitting the streets, there were crowds of hundreds of people gathering around the courthouse, either to participate in the lynching or to observe it. Because another thing about this period of time uh, in many communities, lynching was something of a spectator sport. The crowd grew and grew and grew. And meanwhile, back in Greenwood, these veterans are hearing about this, are seeing this headline, and they're saying, not here. So they organize themselves, and sometime that night, they actually make two trips to the courthouse to offer their services to the sheriff, the white sheriff, who has told the mob, in no uncertain terms, that the only way they're getting Dick Rowland is to kill the sheriff. Uh, he's one of the heroes of the story. And so the, the blacks go back to Greenwood after being assured by the sheriff that he'd protect the prisoner. The blacks go back again about 1030. In the second trip, there's a shot fired, probably accidentally, 
And from then, uh, there was no turning back because both sides were heavily armed. I think there was about a dozen people that died there at the courthouse. After that, the blacks fell back across the railroad tracks into Greenwood, and, and they knew what was about to happen, that this kind of indignity was not going to go unpunished from the white perspective. So they kind of braced themselves, they armed themselves. And at 5.08 a.m., there was a whistle that was clearly the signal to up to 10,000 people, white people had marshaled themselves at strategic locations along the Greenwood border. And so they began to attack. They were repelled uh, initially for a while, but the blacks were greatly outnumbered and outmanned in terms of firepower. And then they were eventually overrun. And then what ended up happening was there are stories of atrocity after atrocity of how black people, men, women, and children were just murdered in cold blood. Uh, the overarching MO was these gangs of white people would go from house to house and they would roust African-Americans from their homes and steal what they could, uh, killing up and killing those who wouldn't leave their homes. And then when everything was done, they would douse these buildings with kerosene and light them on fire. And basically the only buildings left standing by noon of the following day were outhouses because the theory was that they weren't deemed valuable enough to waste kerosene on. Uh, but the aftermath looked like uh, after Hiroshima. And up to 300 people were killed, almost all of them African-Americans. 10,000 were left homeless, up to $200 million in today's dollars uh, of property was lost. It was an unspeakable thing. And then the National Guard showed up after the fact. Uh, the national media showed up from the New York Times to the Houston newspapers on down and writing about what a terrible thing the whites had done. Tulsa leaders were initially contrite, but as soon as the national media left, their tune changed dramatically. They, they basically either bragged about it or started this just amazing conspiracy of silence that lasted for the next 50 years. Thank you for doing that. It's, it's really difficult to hear, and it does feel like it's emblematic of a lot of racism in our country, but maybe exponentially so. And you just answered my next question. You said there's decades of silence. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the response was in the next kind of 10 years? Was there were there efforts to help rebuild? Uh, was this something that officials just tried to sweep under the rug the moment that the national media was gone? Were there any sort of steps taken to try and repair what had happened? Well, there were no steps made by the White Tulsa to assist Greenwood to rebuild. In fact, hundreds of insurance claims were denied. Basically, these, these people, Greenwood rebuilt itself, and it became a, a great source of pride in the years to come that Greenwood rebuilt itself without any help from the white side of town at all, and quite successfully physically. I mean, Greenwood, as it was in 1930, greatly resembled the Greenwood that existed prior to 1921, and it became, a, once, a, once again, it became a flourishing place, and 
became known for its music and food and, and culture. But if you had moved to Tulsa five years afterwards, you never would have known it happened, probably on both sides of the tracks. And, you know, the most succinct and best explanation I've come across in terms of breaking down how this came to be was one of the survivors, uh, a guy by the name of Bill Williams, who was a teenager who fought next to his father in Greenwood as they were trying to repel the mob. He became a teacher, and one of his students went on to become a state representative who was key in kind of unearthing this, uh, told one of his students who was very curious, who was just learning about this in the 1950s and was curious as to why such a thing could be kept quiet. And Bill Williams said, well, now that you know what happened, you can probably understand that if you live through this once, you damn sure don't want to live through it again. And so black people were afraid. He said they would talk to you about what happened if they knew who you were, but they weren't going to talk to anybody if they didn't know who you were because they were afraid. And on the white side of town, he said, people were afraid too, but probably for a much different reason in that there's no statute of limitation for murder. And I think that there's a lot of shame and the leaders of Tulsa knew from the time that the ashes cooled that this was going to be a real black mark on the community and that it was in their best interest to try to cover it up as best they could. So that's what they did. And I just finished a piece for Smithsonian Magazine about this, which gave me the opportunity to go back and talk to the descendants of some of the survivors. And it was kind of eerie that I've had this experience in other stories where a lot of, in a lot of these households, there was this sense that similar to the households of Holocaust survivors, where subsequent generations knew that there was something profoundly wrong in their homes, but they didn't know what it was because no one was talking about it. And another part of the reason, I think, to their credit, another part of the reason that survivors didn't talk about it is that they didn't want their children to inherit kind of the inevitable legacy of hate that would come from something like that. They didn't want them to be scarred emotionally by just utter uh, bewilderingly terrible uh, reality of what had happened. It was just really amazing. Here and there, people would kind of work behind the scenes and in quiet to do interviews and create uh, oral histories of what had happened. But it was just this extraordinary example of cultural amnesia and extraordinary example of this conspiracy of silence. So you just spoke a little bit about the descendants of survivors, and I wanted to take a step back and think about the writing process. When you were writing this book, I know it was 20 years ago, but is there one of the interviews that will stick with you the longest? Well, there were actually a handful. And by virtue of the fact that I came to this 20 years ago, there were still a lot of survivors still alive uh, who are old enough to have direct memories of what happened. And the book begins with, with a woman uh, interviewed named Eldoris McCondrecy, who was nine years old. And uh, she remembers being woken up by her mother that morning, shaken awake. And Eldoris at the time had no clue that anything was wrong. But the mother says, Eldoris, uh, get up. The white folks are killing the colored people. So she's dragged outside by her parents and 
joins a line of refugees heading north along some railroad tracks. And then Eldorish remembers this, this strange beast in the air, a plane coming over and bullets coming down or shots coming down and landing around her like, as I describe in the book, like fat raindrops. And it terrifies her to the extent that she breaks away from her parents and tries to hide in a chicken coop. And her father grabs her and pulls her out and back into this line of refugees. And then she remembers the wall of smoke to the south. And one of the things, a moment I'll never forget, as we were talking, she gets up, and she's close to nine years old at the time, I suppose. She gets up, and she walks across the room of her immaculate living room and grabs a couple of Kleenex and says, I should know better than to talk about that day without holding a couple of these. Another conversation was with a gentleman named George Monroe, who is six or seven, five, six or seven at the time it happened. And again, his family was victimized in the way I described before. Some of George's father wasn't there, but his, his mother was. And so when the mob showed up at their doorstep, his sister pulled him beneath the bed to hide. But George had left his hand sticking out from beneath the bed, and, and one of the mobsters almost stepped on it. And it was her sister who kind of threw her hand over George's mouth to keep him from screaming and to pull his hand out of the way. The story about one of the things I really remember about that night is after we were finished talking, George disappears, and he comes back, and he hands me a, a dime that had been charred in the burning, and he gave it to me as a keepsake. You know, it's something obviously that, uh, you know, very valuable to us now. Uh, there's a grace about these people as I talked to them 20 years ago that has always stayed with me. How they spoke of it, the humanity of those people was just something that really struck me and has always stayed with me. And I've gotten to know some of their descendants in the last several months too, but it was just the, those moments have stayed with me and, and always will. Is there a reason you think that this is an unknown chapter of our history? I mean, there are so many really egregious moments that I remember learning about as a kid. And look, my long-term memory isn't great, but I don't remember that this was a big chapter in the history books. Not only was it not a big chapter in the history books, it wasn't mentioned in the history books. Uh, it was completely missing from the history books. And in the year 2000, when I first learned about it from my editor in my Texas newspaper, she handed me the story and I read it. And I, I looked at her in shock. I said, this cannot be true. Anything this horrible, we certainly would have known about it. It should have been one of the kind of the watershed moments in American history, much less race history. Uh, yet no one knew about it. But I, I think that to a significant extent, that is also true of the rest of the history surrounding race in this country. The truth of it hasn't been taught, uh, or at least not adequately. And my theory has been, ever since I learned about it as this kind of oblivious white boy from northern Minnesota, that learning the history changed my life. And I became much more curious and much more compassionate about people different than myself. And my theory is that so many people like me, people of goodwill, would have a similar experience if they just learned the true history. And fortunately, I think in the last year, uh, the readership of my book has grown greatly. And I'm hearing from people who have read it 
who say they had a similar experience to me. This is horrible, but I'm so glad I learned about it. And it's really helps me understand what's going on today. It, it does help us understand what's happening today. And I think that brings us perfectly to, you know, we talked about the lead up to the massacre, the massacre itself and the aftermath. And I want to fast forward a bit to where we are today. How much of the massacre has dictated where we are as a country today? And maybe more to the point, are we, in your view, that different of a country than we were 100 years ago? It's a very complicated question. Yes, we're a different country, and no, we're not. (laughs) Uh, I would say this, that when I learned about this, and the book was published to great reviews, but almost no sales, because I don't think the country is ready to read it, frankly. But I became aware of this almost haunting sense that we had this terrible wound in this country that no one was talking about. And I'd started to believe that there was a reckoning that was inevitable because of the size of this wound, but that I was unlikely to see it in my lifetime. And then George Floyd happened, and we all know what the last year has been like. And as painful as it's been, this reckoning that I had anticipated and hoped for had finally come to pass. But some of the undercurrents, uh, maybe they're not even undercurrents because they're so prevalent in this nation today, of white supremacy, of white grievance, uh, of white anger, are still so prevalent today. There is a large and large growing population of people who want to understand, of white people who want to understand and trying to become part of the solution, whatever that might be. But we've seen it, especially in the last four to five years, of how this these undercurrents have manifested themselves and continue to be uh, so prevalent in our society. Um, when Charlottesville happened three or four years ago, and I saw those people bearing tiki torches, I guess they're called, and walking through and chanting these terrible things. The moment I saw the video of that, I felt like I recognized the energy of Tulsa in 1921. And I had the same experience uh, watching the video of what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. That same kind of energy was taking place or was manifesting itself. And so, you know, to answer your question, yes, we're different. But in some ways, we're not. And, you know, I don't know what uh, the answers to the questions about how to accelerate the process of change. Well, that was going to be my next question. And that was going to be where I thought a good ending place, I think, until I switch gears for a moment. But if you could wave a magic wand and you said, you know, the energy was similar when we talk about Charlottesville, when we talk about the insurrection, that for you, it felt like a palpably similar moment. If there's one big change you could implement in America, would it be legislation? Would it be uh, a different cultural understanding? Would it be all of the above? I know it's unfair, but is there one thing where you watch these events happen and you think, I wish I could just fill in the blank. Well, I was asked to say, I was giving a talk about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. And 
what's really been encouraging is the degree to which I've been speaking with white audiences that are really genuinely concerned and really want to do the right thing and they want to know what they can do to, to help. And so the, the same question was put to me, what would you suggest? And my answer is, at risk of sounding cavalier, uh, my answer is read my book or read books similar to that, that tell the story, not only about Tulsa, but what the reality of life was for African-Americans, not only during slavery, but after the Civil War. And I firmly believe that before you can really effectively tackle uh, systemic racism, either legislatively or otherwise, I think the nation needs to understand the beginnings of it. And I think that Tulsa is a metaphor in that respect as well. You know, there's so much that white people just don't know about that history. And unless and until we learn about it in some sort of a broad way, as painful as that education might be, I just think that that is a necessary first step. And unless and until that happens, I, real change is going to be much slower in, in coming. Tim, in the beginning, we talked about the fact that your book, The Burning, The Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, is being adapted for young adults. Could you tell us a little bit about who's involved in that project and how the book is going to change? It happened because uh, an editor in New York named Kate Farrell had seen Watchmen, the depiction of what happened in Tulsa. And my book was the source material for that. And she is an editor of books for young adults and thought that this would be a worthy subject. And I completely agree. And she put me in touch with an African-American writer named Hilary Beard, who basically translated it in some ways. Didn't need a tremendous amount of translation or changes to become acceptable and understandable by younger audiences. But she did some of that, but she also brought a different perspective uh, to the story uh, that I couldn't have brought because of who I am and how I was raised. And, and a big thing that is so important to her and I think so important to uh, so many African-Americans today is to emphasize uh, something we talked about early on in our conversation, which is the achievement, the perseverance the industriousness, the decency of African-Americans in the times after the Civil War. Um, you know, it's very difficult to hear, uh, if you're an African-American, to hear more stories of how uh, their people were, have been brutalized in this country over the years. But I think that what Hillary, one of the things Hillary brought to the book is a real passion for and skill for depicting in ways that I couldn't have uh, the achievements of African-Americans, not only in Tulsa, but throughout the nation at the time. So I'm very proud of that book. It's been a great honor to work with her. And I think that in terms of the solution um, that we're talking about, um, I mean, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take it upon ourselves to learn. But the more we can kind of grab young people or interest them, educate them about the truth of our past, I think the further along we'll be in terms of dealing with a lot of these issues. Tim, last question. You just mentioned because of who I am and how I was raised. 
Could you talk a little bit about how writing this book affected you personally? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it changed my life. And I've made a connection and just in the last few weeks as I've been thinking about it, you mentioned the first book, another book I wrote was a memoir of my friendship with Fred Rogers, who mentored me in the mid-1990s after we met through a very, very difficult time in my life. And one of the things he did was he encouraged me to learn the story of my father, who I was having issues with. You know, what was his story, he would say. And so I began to ask my father these questions, and what I learned broke my heart. I mean, his his childhood was a lot worse than mine. But by learning his story, he became a human being to me for the first time. Uh, his humanity was revealed. He ceased being this, or he started being just another suffering human being. Um, and it occurred to me that when I learned the history of Tulsa, the same thing happened. Learning the history allowed a humanity of people different than myself to be revealed in my own heart. And with that came a greater compassion and a greater curiosity. One of Fred Rogers' favorite sayings or most important sayings was, it's much easier to love someone when you know their story. And I think that that is our task today. I can almost hear his voice that if you want to really come to terms with what's going on, learn the story and go back to the beginning. And I think that that's what we need to do. That is a great note to end on. Tim Madigan, thank you for passing judgment with us. It was my honor and pleasure. And, and it's uh, programs like this and people like you who are, who are definitely part of the solution. There's no question about it. Uh, that is one of the greatest compliments that our podcast could ever get. Thank you for that. And to our listeners, we love having these conversations with you, even conversations that are difficult and don't always leave us in a mood filled with sunshine and rainbows, but I think are really important and productive and hopefully will lead to some optimism because we're having the conversation all and we're listening. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. Tweet me and tell me about other topics you'd like us to cover or other angles that you would like us to discuss. Thank you as always to our listeners and we wish everybody a good day.